Okay, let's read the text first of all. Then we'll pray. This is Luke 11, verses 14 to 28. New American Standard. And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. But he knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Lord, we ask for your blessing upon not only the hearing of the word, but that you would make it effectual in our lives and stir us up and give us a heart to observe it and to obey it. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we run smack dab into this passage on spiritual warfare. And usually when we approach as Christians the subject of spiritual warfare, we make one of two mistakes. Either we overemphasize spiritual warfare, or we underemphasize spiritual warfare. Overemphasize. This is the error of when Christians approach spiritual warfare and they look for demons under every rock and behind every tree, and they think every problem and every sin in our life is due to some demon that has to be cast out of us. But we can also underemphasize spiritual warfare, because there are some Christians who don't even believe there is a real devil, and there are real demons. They say that that's just the the uh, energy of some overcreated mind seeing things that aren't really there. That that the devil and demons are simply symbols of the evil that's in the world, and they have no real being. So we can make, make mistakes either way. It's interesting to me that when we look at this passage, we see what Jesus believed about the devil and demons. Jesus believed in a real personal devil, and he believed in the reality of demons that needed to be cast out of people. In fact, that's one of the three things he did in his ministry, wasn't it? He preached the gospel, healed the sick, and cast out demons. So Jesus knew the devil's real. He's a real being. He knew that demons were real. He knew that they 
would take possession of certain people and make their life miserable and seek to destroy them. But even though that is true, there's no reason that we need to cower in fear from Satan, is there? We read in this passage, verses 21 and 22, that when Jesus came into this world, he attacked the devil, he overpowered him, and he took away his armor, everything on which he depended. So he defeated Satan when he came the first time. You might say he broke his back. He still has an existence, he's still here, he's still roaming around doing all the mischief he can, but he cannot overcome and defeat God's people, because Jesus conquered him once and for all. So we don't have to live in fear of Satan. Now as we work our way through this passage, I want you to see three things. There's an accusation, there's a refutation, and there's an application. Okay? The accusation is in verses 14 to 16. The refutation by Jesus is in 17 to 22. And then from 23 to 28, Jesus brings out an application of spiritual warfare. So let's look at those. First of all, the accusation. Verse 14. Jesus was casting at a demon, and it was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. Now try to imagine the scene in your mind. Have you ever met somebody who just couldn't speak? I don't know that I ever have. Here was a man who, he, even if he wanted to, he couldn't speak. He might be able to point or use hand signals or grunt and groan, but he couldn't bring forth any intelligible words. Now why couldn't he? What was wrong with him? The Bible says he had a demon. The demon was inside of his body and doing something in such a way to make it impossible for him to be able to communicate audibly. He couldn't make any words out. So here comes Jesus into this particular village. This man becomes a parent. He comes in front of the Lord, and the Lord simply casts out the spirit with a word. And so it says here, the crowds were amazed. This would be an amazing miracle, wouldn't it? All of a sudden, this man starts talking. And now he hasn't been able to speak for years. And all of a sudden, he says, Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for whatever you just did. I can feel there's a difference, and I'm talking to you now. And so everybody in the crowd that hears him is just amazed because they know he can't speak. So that's the occasion of the accusation. Now, in Scripture, sometimes you will find that evil spirits come into the body of a person and they will, they will do things to prevent that person from being able to act normally. For example, in Matthew 12, 22, there is an evil spirit that comes into a person and this evil spirit not only renders him unable to speak, but unable to see. He's blind. And when the spirit is cast out, sight is restored. So the demon is doing something evidently, inside the body of that individual to prevent him from not only being able to speak, but being able to see. And also, Luke 13, 11, there's a woman who had an evil spirit, and she was bent double. She was like this, and she couldn't raise up. She, she had to walk around like this all the time. And when the spirit was cast out, she could straighten up, and she could walk normally again. So evil spirits delight in doing as much mischief and evil and bringing as much suffering and pain and heartache into people's lives as they can. 
Jesus is in the business of delivering people from satanic power. So that's the occasion of this accusation. Now look at verse 15. Let's look at the nature of the accusation. But some of them said, well, the way he's able to cast those evil spirits out is because he does it because he's Beelzebul. He's the ruler of the demons. Now the word Beelzebul was like a nickname for Satan that was used in the first century amongst the Jews. He's Beelzebul. He's the ruler of the demons. Jesus, you know, he's really Satan. And that's why he's able to cast out these demons, because he's the ruler of the demons. Now, that's what they said. Who were these people? It just says here, some of them said. Well, if you turn to Matthew 9.34, you'd find out it's the Pharisees who are saying this. The Pharisees were the strictest sect of the Jews. The ones who enforced the law the most stringently. The ones who spent their entire lives trying to keep God's law and every jot and tittle of it, and they tried to make everybody else do the same thing. They not only lived by the Bible, but they lived by the oral traditions of the teachers of the Old Testament who made up various rules that connected with God's law. So they're the ones saying, this guy's Satan, and that's why he can cast out demons. Well, let's think about that for a minute. Why in the world would they come up with this lame accusation? I mean, you can see right through it. It doesn't take much to see right through this accusation. Why would they come up with an accusation that Jesus is Satan? Well, they had to come up with something. They couldn't explain away the miracle. They couldn't say, oh, that was just sleight of hand, or he's using magic potions. They could see before their very eyes a real miracle had just happened. They had to come up with some explanation, and there was no better explanation they could come up with. So this is the only one they could come up with. They're trying to discredit him. They hated Jesus. Jesus didn't fit into their religious system. Jesus would do things like heal a person on the Sabbath and tell him to pick up his mat and go home. And that just infuriated them because they were, Jesus was telling them to do something that was breaking their rules that they had attached to the law. Or Jesus was fine with them picking grains on the Sabbath day, rubbing it between their fingers and popping those pieces of grain into their mouth and eating it. And they said, you can't do that. That's reaping and threshing and, and doing all of these <laughs> articles of work on the Sabbath day. So Jesus didn't fit into their parameters, and Jesus would not kowtow to them either. He wasn't afraid of them. He wasn't intimidated by them. In fact, when we get to the last half of this chapter, you're going to see that Jesus calls them all kinds of, um, well, to them, really bad names. Hypocrites, serpents, snakes. So they hated him. And Jesus' influence was increasing and their influence amongst the people was decreasing. And they felt they had to do something to stop him. In fact, back in chapter 6 of Luke, verse 11, it says, They themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. They had already decided they had to do something to get rid of him. They couldn't let him go on. They're filled with rage they have to do something. So here we come to chapter 11, when Jesus does a legitimate miracle by casting out a demon so the man can now speak. They said, oh, he's got to be Beelzebul. 
It's got to be because he has the power of Satan. That's why he's able to do this. Now notice verse 16. Others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. Doesn't that sound a little crazy to you? He just did a sign. <laughs> he just did one. And they said, well, that's not enough. And, and it doesn't, doesn't say they were requesting of him a sign. They demanded one. Why? For what reason? To test him. Not because they really wanted to know whether he was the Messiah or not, or whether he was the Son of God who had come down to save his people from their sins. That wasn't their objective. They just wanted to test him. And so they demanded, give me a sign right now from heaven. And completely overlooking the fact that he had just given them a sign from heaven. So there we have the accusation leveled against Jesus. Now, how does Jesus refute it? That's verses 17 to 22. First of all, he tells them, what you've just said is illogical. Look at verse 17 and 18. Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. Their whole accusation doesn't make any sense at all. Why would Satan want to cast out demons from people? It, there, there's no good reason why Satan would want to do that. He's going to weaken his kingdom by doing that. He's going to divide his kingdom, and his whole kingdom's just going to start crumbling and falling. He's going to de be defeating his own purposes by casting demons out of people. So Jesus, number one, says, that just doesn't make any sense. That's an, that's an insane accusation that you're making. It's like somebody taking out a gun and deliberately shooting themselves in the foot. You say, who would do that? Well, maybe a mentally deranged person. That's about it. So this doesn't make any sense. First of all, it's illogical. Secondly, it's inconsistent. Look at verse 19. And if by Beelzebul cast out demons, I'm sorry, if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. So here you've got other Jews that are going around exercising people of demons, casting demons out. Jesus was doing it, and these other Jewish people were doing it. Now here's the thing. They never accused the other Jewish people of doing it by the power of Satan. They only accused Jesus of doing it by the power of Satan. And that's why he says, on Judgment Day, they're going to be your judges. Because you are being completely inconsistent. You were judging Jesus as being evil, being filled with the power of Satan and casting out spirits by that power, but you would not apply the same standard to your own Jewish brethren that were casting out spirits. They will be your judges on the judgment day. So it's illogical, it's inconsistent, and thirdly, it's just plain ignorant. Why? Well, look at verse 20. He says, But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Those people were ignorant of who Jesus was. And he explains to them who he is in verse 20. He says, if, the, if I by the finger of God am casting out demons, that means the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's come upon you. And if the kingdom of God has come upon you, who am I? The king. The king from heaven is in your midst. And they were blind to who he was. 
They were blinded because they just wanted to kill him and get rid of him. They hated him. They couldn't see him for who he was. Notice he says, If I cast out demons by what? By the finger of God. It wasn't by the arm of God or even the hand of God. It's by the finger of God. Jesus could go around and just cast out demons with his little finger. <laughs> he, was, he was enveloped by the very, very power of God, and God was working through him to heal all who were oppressed by the devil. So number one, they were ignorant that he was the king. And then look at 21 and 22. They were ignorant of something else. When a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. What does Jesus call himself in verse 22? Someone stronger than Satan. Jesus is the ruler of Satan, according to verse 22. Now notice verse 21. Satan's called what there? A strong man. Satan is strong. You have to give him that. He has power, and he's got a lot of it. But Jesus is stronger. Jesus is stronger than Satan. And they were ignorant of that fact. Notice this little parable that he tells. It's not really a parable, but it's, it's symbolism. It's a metaphor in verse 21 and 22. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. So Satan is that strong man, and it says there he's fully armed. So he's got, he's got guns, knives, machetes, spears, swords. He's got all of this armor, all of this weaponry. And he's got a house too. And what's he doing to that house? He's guarding it. He's guarding his house. And inside that house, what does he have? He's got possessions, according to verse 21. He's got certain possessions. What do you think those possessions represent? Us. People. <laughs> Lost people. Who are, who Satan has blinded their minds. See, the house represents Satan's kingdom. And the people represent his possessions that he's guarding within his kingdom. So he's got a house, and he's got a kingdom, but notice verse 22. When someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all, all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. Jesus is saying, the reason I can cast out these demons is because I have attacked Satan, I've overcome Satan, overpowered him, and I have taken away all his armor. Now, if you read the New Living Translation or the New uh, International Version, it'll, it'll say that I have taken away all of his weapons. So he's got the machine gun, the hand grenades, you know, all these weapons that he uses to guard his house so that nobody can take him away. What did Jesus do? He broke down the door of Satan's house. He invaded it. He took away all the weapons that he had. Took them all away. He disarmed him. Now, that's what policemen do, don't they? They arrest somebody, and they pat them down, and if they've got a knife or a gun, they find it, and they take it away, and they have disarmed that person so that he's been rendered powerless, right? 
Now, I want to show you some texts from the rest of the New Testament that tell us exactly the same thing that Jesus just tells us here. Okay? Colossians 2.15 When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. What does it say he did to the rulers and authorities? Disarm them. Exactly the same thing Jesus said in Luke 11. He took away the weapons. He disarmed them. And made a public display of them, having triumphed, conquered Satan and all of his hordes, infested hordes of demons. Um, also, we have this passage in Hebrews chapter 2. Look at verse 14 and 15. Therefore, since the children, that's you and I, share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render, what? Powerless. Him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So what we find in Hebrews and Colossians is that Jesus disarmed Satan, he rendered him powerless through his death on the cross, and evidently Jesus could even say before he died, that he had already attacked Satan, overpowered him, and took away his armory. Now, when did Jesus begin to do that? Do you remember? What has Jesus already done by the time we get to Luke 11 regarding Satan? Where's the first time they meet in combat? Okay. It, it's the temptations of Satan after Jesus had fasted for 40 days. They come into this fight and Satan is trying to get him to sin and he's giving him these temptations and Jesus conquered him there. And that gave Jesus the edge, that, that gave him the ability to take away the weaponry of Satan so that now he can just walk in and he can cast out spirits left and right whenever he wants to. He has power over him. So they were ignorant that Jesus is king. They were ignorant that Jesus is the ruler of Satan. And did you know that, that is, he is the only one that can really rescue any soul from Satan? Jesus is the only one that can do that? Sometimes people, without Jesus' help, can get free from drugs or alcohol. Maybe they join a 12-step program. They never get converted, but they get off... They get sobered up or they get clean from drugs. And so they're doing a lot better. But you know, Satan doesn't really care if he, somebody, a drunk, can get sober as long as that person still ends up in hell. Just because someone is able to get free from drugs or alcohol doesn't mean they've been able to be rescued from Satan's grip. Satan's still got a hold of them until they come to Jesus Christ and are forgiven and receive eternal life. And... That's what we need to be in the business of doing. That's the job of the church, rescuing people from Satan's grip and bringing them over into Jesus' kingdom. That's our job. Those of you who have been coming on Wednesday nights, we've been learning the two kingdoms, haven't we? We'll talk about the two kingdoms a little bit later on today. So they, their accusation was illogical, it was inconsistent, and it was ignorant of who Jesus was. But now notice the application. Jesus comes down to the application in verses 23 to 28. Verse 23. He said, He who is not with me is against me, 
and he who does not gather with me scatters. So the first application that Jesus makes is this. You have to choose sides. You've got to choose sides of whom you're going to serve. Which king are you going to serve? Satan or Christ? Satan or Jesus? See, there's no neutral ground. Jesus said, he who is not with me is what? It's against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. You have to make a choice to be with Jesus. You have to make a choice of surrendering your life to Him as your King. I used to think, well, I'm not really with Jesus, but I'm not really against Him either. I'm just kind of walking down the middle of life, not really making any choice either way. What does Jesus say? I'm against Him. Unless I make a conscious determination to invite Him into my life as my King and surrender to His Lordship in my life and let Him be the boss of my life from now on, I'm against Him. And I've sided with Satan. I have sided with Satan if I don't side with Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that there's two kingdoms and every person in this world is in one of two different kingdoms. Right? There's a kingdom of darkness and there's a kingdom of light. Satan is the king of the kingdom of darkness. And what does he bring to the people under his reign, ultimately? Death and destruction. Jesus is the king of the kingdom of light. What does he bring to the people who are in his kingdom? Love and grace and mercy and everlasting life. The problem is, well, think back to the very beginning of the book of Genesis. This world at one time was the kingdom of light. It was the kingdom of God. Until Satan wormed his way in and through deception got Adam and Eve to disobey God and to obey him and they exited the kingdom of light and they came into the kingdom of darkness. And ever since then, every person who's born of Adam and Eve, that's everybody, we enter, immediately enter into the kingdom of darkness. We're born into it. And we must exit that kingdom and enter the kingdom of light before we die or we will spend eternity in the kingdom of darkness. We will be punished in the place of hell for all eternity. You see, the life that we live the 60, 70, 80 years of life that we enjoy on this planet, it's like a bubble. And when that bubble pops, whichever king we were serving in this lifetime is the king that we will be with, either Jesus in heaven or with Satan in hell for all eternity. So the question is, who are we serving today? Who have we surrendered our life to today? I'm not talking about someone who goes to church or someone who hears the Bible or someone who knows Bible truth. I'm talking about someone who's obeying somebody. Who are you obeying today? Really, look at your life. Who is it that you really are obeying? Satan or Jesus? That'll tell you what kingdom you're in. So we've got to choose sides. Now verses 24, 25, and 26 are Jesus' illustration of somebody who tries to remain neutral. What happens when someone tries to remain neutral and doesn't choose a side? Let's read it. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, 
It passes through waterless places seeking rest, and not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Now notice this. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it doesn't say it's driven out of a man or cast out of a man. It says it goes out. So for whatever reason, this spirit decides to leave a person. But when it does, it goes through waterless places. Now this is a metaphor because demons don't need water. Demons don't need to drink. So if this is a, a metaphor, what would it mean for a demon to go through waterless places? What would it mean for one of us to go through a waterless place? We're going through a desert. Are we happy or miserable? <laughs> We're miserable. You can't find any water. You're dying of thirst. You've got to have water. You can't find any. That's how Jesus is describing this demon that goes out of the man. He looks for another place. He can't find another place to go. It's like a, a man dying of thirst looking for water and he can't find any. He's not a happy camper, is he? Until he decides, okay, well, if I can't find any other place to go, I better go back to the place I just left. And I'll just go back into that fellow. At least that's better than having no place to go. See, demons like to inhabit a body. When they can't inhabit a human body, they'll even inhabit an animal. Do you remember the, the case of the demoniac? When they were cast out of the man, they said, let us go into those that herd of pigs over there. And so Jesus let them do it. They want to inhabit a body. Now, why would Satan and demons like to inhabit people's bodies? Why would they do that? They like to control them. For the same reason that a vandal wants to have a can of spray paint. Right? He wants to have a can of spray paint so he can do his mischief with it. Or the same reason that a murderer wants to have a gun or a knife. You see, Satan needs a body through which he can express himself and do his evil and do his mischief. He can't just do it on his own. He's got to do it through another individual. So he likes to influence and be behind the scenes working in people's lives to create all kinds of sin, all kinds of destruction in their wake. So he says, okay, I'll just go back. When he comes back, what does he find? It's swept and put in order. So when this demon goes out of a person's life, Let's say, he, let's say the person was addicted to drugs or alcohol. He's finally able to get some help. He goes through a 12-step program, and he's, he gets off of drugs. He gets off of alcohol. Maybe he stops watching pornography, or he stops shoplifting. His life starts to take on some order for the first time. It's swept. It looks clean now. Now, what, what does that tell you his life was like before the demon left him? It was chaotic. It was filthy. I mean, if, if you looked at that house, it'd be dirty. Every, it's like books are here, all stacked all over the place. Magazines are all of the, there's barely an aisle. You can walk through the house. There's dirty dishes that high in the sink. It's just a bunch of chaos. But now the demon comes back and wow, someone's cleaned up this house. It's swept. It's put in order. Now, if you cross-reference this with Matthew 12, 44, 
Yeah, that's the text, Matthew 12, 44. Matthew gives us a little insight here. He says he comes back and he finds it unoccupied. It's swept, it's put in order, but nobody's living in the house. No demons living in the house, but Jesus isn't living in that house either. He never invited Christ to come in and take possession and rule that house. It's just unoccupied. So this person from whom the demon has gone out, he hasn't been converted. He's been someone who's turned over a new leaf. He's been able to make some progress through self-help programs of one kind or another, maybe self-actualization or psychology or whatever. He's gotten some help, but he hasn't become a believer in Jesus Christ. He's become a moral person, perhaps. But did you know that it is more dangerous to be moral than to be immoral? if you don't have Christ in your life? That's what we learn from this passage. Jesus says that, that man's going to take, or that demon's going to take seven more demons, more evil than itself. And did you know that some demons are more evil than other demons? They're all evil, but some are even more evil than others. He's going to find seven, and now all eight of them are going to move back into that person's house and utterly control them. Even though the house now is swept and is put in order, He's going to be completely controlled by satanic influences because he's going to think he's okay now. And the gospel can't even get to him any longer because he's moral. He's turned over this new leaf. He thinks he's a good person, like the person we met yesterday who's dying of cancer but thinks that they are so close to God because they're a good person and they've got a good heart. They're almost unreachable at that point. It would be better for you to be immoral without Christ than to be moral without Christ. Because the devil doesn't care if you're moral or immoral just as long as you perish in hell. And it is harder to reach a person that's moral than it is to reach an immoral person. Remember the people Jesus talked to in his earthly ministry? Who are the people that hated his guts? The moral, the Pharisees, the religious folks. Who are the ones that loved him? The prostitutes, the tax collectors, the common people heard him gladly. They were closer to the kingdom than the Pharisees were, even though they spent their whole life trying to keep the law. So, we have to choose sides. And if you don't choose sides, if you try to be neutral, this is what's likely to happen to you. If you try just to walk the fence without letting Jesus come in and occupy your life and take control, Satan is going to have a greater influence in your life than if you were just an immoral individual. That's the first point of application. You must choose sides. Secondly, you must hear the word of God and obey it. Look at verse 27. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it or observe it. So here's a woman who's hearing Jesus speak about his power over Satan and trying to give Jesus a compliment. She said, blessed is your mother. Your mother must have been so blessed to bear a child like you, to bring you into the world and nurse you. She must be a very blessed woman. And Jesus doesn't really receive that as a compliment. Instead, he says, on the contrary. <laughs> In other words, well, no, you're not exactly right there. Let me tell you what's really the truth. Here's the real truth. The truly blessed person is the one who hears the word of God 
and does what? Observes it. A lot of people like to lift up Mary as the mother of Jesus and say she's so blessed. What a blessed woman she is. And yeah, she was blessed to be the woman through which Jesus would come into the world. But Jesus would say, you and I are more blessed than Mary if we not only hear God's word, but do it. Now let's talk about that for just a minute. The application is to hear the word, but not just to hear it, to obey it. I'm seeing more and more and more as I'm looking at the scriptures that we have made a colossal error here in American Christianity. And the error is thinking that the more knowledge we have and the more information we have, the more mature we are and the more pleasing to God we are. And so we spend our services giving as much information to people as we can. And that's good. People need information but we're not expecting obedience to the things that we say. What is a disciple? <laughs> What's a disciple? Let me just give you a definition. A disciple is somebody who spends his life learning what his master wants him to do and then doing it. A nominal Christian is somebody who knows what his master wants to do and never puts it into action. And did you know nominal Christians are not saved? You cannot be saved unless you obey God. I get that from Matthew 24, I'm sorry, Matthew 7, 24 to 27, the very parable that Oleg brought up earlier in our open session. When the judgment comes, when the storm comes, your house is going to fall. It's going to be devastated and destroyed if you've only heard the words of Jesus but never put them into practice. And it's incredible to me the number of People in America who say they're Christians and never talk to anybody about the gospel. Jesus told them to do it. He commanded them to do it. But they either neglect or just ignore that command and they think it's okay for them to do that because they go to a church and everybody else, all their friends, just never talk to anybody else about the gospel. Folks, this is crazy. Our king has told us, he's commanded us what to do. How, how dare we act as if we have a choice in this? Whether we can just, well, I just ignore that one. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Why do you do that? Why do you profess that I am your Savior and I'm your Lord and you don't do what I say? We do not have an option. These are our marching orders. It's like you joining the army and your general says, this is what I want you to do. And you say, well, I'm not going to do that uh, Mr. General, sir, I'm going to do something else instead. I just don't like that. It's not going to go over real well. We must overcome our fear. or Whatever it's holding us back from doing what Jesus has commanded us to do, we've got to get over that. And we've got to start being obedient. And I'm convinced that any Christian that possesses the Holy Spirit can talk to another person about Jesus Christ and what he's done in their life. The Spirit of God will empower you and he will, he will embolden you to do that if you'll trust in Him and pray and cry out to Him. But of course, there's all other areas of obedience too. There's personal sanctification. There's husbands loving wives and wives submitting to husbands. There's telling the truth rather than lying. There's all kinds of areas where the Bible tells us we must obey our master. 
And we've got to begin putting these things into practice. So what I have been thinking is that it might be better for me not to preach quite as long, still preach, still give you content, but then take some time as a, as a church to talk about, okay, what are we going to do with this? Let's decide what we're going to do with the word of Jesus that he just told us, and let's pray with each other, and let's commit to put the things that we've learned into practice. Not just learn more information. Let's do it. Can anybody say amen? amen? Are you with me on this one? That we're going to obey King Jesus? We're not just going to hear, be a hearer only. We're going to be a doer of the word. Amen. So we have learned to substitute knowledge for obedience. And what I've learned is that Christians in third world countries that come to Christ, the, the plan over there is not to fill their heads with more and more and more knowledge. The plan there is to give them enough knowledge to put it into practice that week. They come back. If they've obeyed, great. We'll give you another lesson. If they don't obey, let's go over the same lesson because you're not obeying yet. We've got to put it into practice. Now, let me just wrap up with some thoughts for you to consider. Number one, I want you to realize that Satan is strong. Jesus calls him the strong man. He's strong enough to bring the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans into the lives of, of Job's servants, to steal the livestock, to kill the servants. He's strong enough to bring fire from heaven to, to devour the sheep of Job. He's strong enough to bring a, a great wind to cause the roof to cave in and fall on Job's children and kill them. He's strong enough to bring boils to cover all of Job's body. It says in 2 Thessalonians 2.9, he's strong enough to empower the man of lawlessness to do these great lying wonders and signs, give him great power. 1 John 5.19 says that he's so strong that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He is strong. You need to realize that. But secondly, you need to realize Jesus is stronger. And that's why we don't live in fear of Satan. That's why we can face the future confidently. Jesus is stronger. Never make the mistake of thinking that Jesus and Satan are kind of equal counterparts duking it out. And we're, we're, we wonder who's going to win the fight. Jesus in a ring with Satan? It's a joke. You put, put Satan in a ring with Jesus? Jesus with his little finger is going to over, overcome and beat Satan isn't he? Just with his little finger. There's no match. There's no contest. Let me show you this from Colossians 1, verse 15 and 16. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now when it talks about thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, what's that talking about? Yeah, yeah, it's talking about demonic powers, different rankings of demons. Um, Satan is the greatest power amongst the demons, and there's others that have various rankings. These are thrones, dominions, powers, authorities. Who created them? Jesus Christ did. For by Jesus, all things were created. 
Jesus is not sort of the counterpart of Satan. Jesus created Satan. Now, Satan is a high-ranking angel of the highest order, but Jesus created him. <laughs> There's no contest between these two. Notice it says that Jesus created everything, whether it's visible or invisible. Now, we can't see demons, but they're real. They're invisible. And he created all different rankings of them. Thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He created even those angels that went astray because they're going to fit into his own purposes and in the end bring him glory. So, there's no contest here. Jesus, when he was on the cross, Satan thought he had him licked, didn't he? Ha, he's getting rid of the Son of God. And it was like a, a snake biting the heel of Jesus on that cross. But Jesus took his heel and stomped it down on the head of that snake and crushed it. Destroyed his power. There's an old prophecy from Genesis 3.15 which said Satan and Jesus were going to come into this moral conflict. Satan was going to bite him on the heel. Jesus is going to stomp his head. Jesus was going to conquer him. And he did. So, Satan's strong, but Jesus is stronger. Third lesson to learn here. We need to surrender to King Jesus. Now, maybe you've never done that. Maybe you've heard about him all your life. Maybe you've been to church many, many times, but you have never surrendered control of your life to Jesus Christ. That's where salvation takes place. You can't enter the kingdom unless you repent. To repent is saying, I'm not going to run my life anymore. I'm done with that. I've made a mess of my life trying to run my life. I'm turning control of my life over to Jesus, and I want Him to start giving me the direction of what He wants me to do from now on. I want Him to be boss. I want Him to be Lord. So if you've never done that, this morning, just in your heart, give over the control of your life to Jesus Christ. And if you have done that, ask yourself, are there still areas of my life that Satan too often is having his way in my life? He's still exercising this pull He's still influencing me in this way or that way. And I find myself diverted from really surrendering all of my life to Jesus. See, as Christians, we need to also repent and believe the gospel. We need to continually surrender to King Jesus. So just ask yourself, are there areas that Satan is having his way in my life? Just identify them. Number four, we need to prepare for spiritual warfare. See, we are invading Satan's kingdom right now. God has stirred us up to go out into Satan's kingdom. We're going, we're invading his ranks. It's like Jesus, when he entered Satan's house, we're starting to enter Satan's house, and we're going to be pulling people out of there, taking his possessions, plundering the house as we bring the gospel to people. And Satan is going to be furious about that. He's going to be angry, and he's going to do anything he can to attack back. Now we will be victorious in Christ, but we need to be prepared that the devil is going to do whatever he can to strike back at us. So be prepared for that. Don't think, what's going on? Don't freak out. Just, okay, Satan's attacking. 
But greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. If I stand in Christ wearing his armor, I will overcome him. And so we need to be strong in who? In the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on all the armor of God. Lift up that shield of faith. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and do battle against him. So that means we must be with the Lord daily in prayer and in the word, putting God's armor on so that we're ready when those attacks come. Because they're bound to come, because Satan's going to be very angry. See, all of his possessions in Gold Crossing's apartments were undisturbed and at peace until we went over there a week ago. All of his possessions in his house over at Winchester Place Apartments were undisturbed and at peace. The devil just ruled over them. There wasn't anything going on. All of a sudden, the gospel's going in there. People are starting, oh, you mean I can be freed? I can leave this kingdom? I can come into the kingdom of light? And Satan's going to do whatever he can to stop that. So let's be prepared for that. Amen? Those are the four lessons I want us to consider. Let's pray, and then we will discuss how we can do this practically in our life. Father, would you enable us now to put into practice, to identify the areas that your Spirit is pointing out to us today, so that we can truly seek to apply your word to our lives this week. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.